Join Raise the Line in celebrating the launch of the new Osmosis Clinical Sciences Library. Developed for first-time clinical learners, it includes hundreds of visually engaging videos paired with decision-making trees aligned to U.S. core clerkship curriculum guidelines to help students think clinically from day one to patient one. Start your free trial today at osms.it rtl. Hi everybody, I'm Michael Carice, welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. And we're going to do that today with Dr. David Labarsky, the Vice Chancellor of Human Health Sciences and the CEO for UC Davis Health in Sacramento, California, where he oversees the UC Davis School of Medicine, the Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing, UC Davis Medical Center, a children's hospital, and a rehab hospital. Hallmarks of his five-year tenure include expanding care to underserved communities, creating unique partnerships with both the public and private sectors, and putting the health system on a sustainable economic footing. An accomplished physician and scholar, Dr. Labarsky is also a professor of anesthesiology and nursing, faculty member in the UC Davis Graduate School of Management, and a national expert on behavioral economics in health incentive systems, among other subject areas. We're really looking forward to getting a take on the current and future state of healthcare and medical education from the perspective of an academic medical system leader, because they play a very, very important role in our healthcare system. So we're very pleased to have you with us today, Dr. Labarsky. Thank you for the invitation and for the kind introduction. So we always like to start with learning more about our guests and what first got them interested in medicine, and in your case, anesthesiology. Right. Well, I sort of knew I wanted to be a doctor from the time I was 11 years old and never deviated from that path. And you know, it all started with my family doctor, Dr. Leonard Shafton, who also happened to be the grandfather of one of my childhood friends. And I was feeling sick with a stomach flu one day and my parents called him up and you know, he came over to our home just a few miles away and made the old fashioned doctor house call and he came with his black bag and a can of sort of flat, it was a bottle back then, flat Coke and a spoon <laughs> and sort of spoon fed me some, you know, flat sugar water and oozed compassion and caring and made me feel better. And I realized that I wanted to do that. Mm. And you may say, well, heck, <laughs> home home visit to a pediatric patient as far cry from being an academic cardiothoracic anesthesiologist. And indeed it is. But the same thing that drove me then, which was to be able to help people, drove me to try and be the very, very best, very, very high, you know, high risk, not high risk doctor, but some a doctor taking care of high risk patients to get them safely through their surgery really appealed to me. And the same in terms of the leadership role I aspired to and, and now have, which is the ability to use that position to leverage all the good that an organization can do on behalf of each and every individual patient. Harkening back to that very first day when I was feeling so sick and I just needed someone to hold my hand basically. And that has not changed. 50 years, that has not changed. Yeah, that's very powerful. So you knew from 11 you wanted to be a doctor. When did it get on your radar that you're interested in, in academic medicine and, and then leadership? Right. Well, it's 
again, since I knew I wanted to be a doctor, I applied myself and got into a variety of combined pre-medical and medical school programs and ended up going, I was actually the first graduate of Washington University in St. Louis's Scholars Program in Medicine, got an amazing education, undergraduate in history and then medical school there. And I just wanted to be a pediatrician. I mean, that was still on that, I was on that route. And I got three years through medical school and I had all these electives lined up through pediatric orthopedics, pediatric cardiology, regular pediatrics. And at the end of it, I felt the world was unfair and it made me very sad every night to be unable to help sick children, right? To not really be able to cure them all the time. And so I had a look, I, 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 I found myself adrift. And sometimes you, you know, you don't realize that there's a reason for that. It turned out academic anesthesia was, was a great call, but that wasn't what I was doing. I was like, okay, I was a little disillusioned because the limits of medicine, I'm like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to be a practicing doc. I'm going to give back to the community by say, volunteering my services for anesthesia. And then I didn't realize academic medicine my whole life would be volunteering right <laughs> <laughs> so in my last year of residency in my fellowship i started to do some research into uh, the basic physiology of cellular metabolism under low flow states and and i was doing really well as a student and a trainee and they said that I would drive private practitioners crazy because I was constantly asking questions and wanting to know things for which there was no answer. And they insisted that I pursue a career in academics, which I did and was recruited down to do to uh, do some basic research a quarter of a cent, more than a quarter of a century ago to work on near-infrared spectroscopy when it was first being invented. So, you know, it was kind of accidental. It wasn't my plan. My plan was to be a practicing pediatric either doc or specialist and yet i ended up like i said cardiothoracic anesthesia taking care of 90 year olds and doing lung transplants and heart transplants and cabbage valves and all that stuff yeah no and that's a hugely i mean i, I knew a cardiothoracic surgeon who had done ten thousand procedures and he said the only somebody's heart is a very very special thing there's a spiritual sort of aspect to it and it's incredibly important for people to feel trust in the team in that circumstance so for sure very important stuff so give us a a, a sense of uc davis the the health system that i kind of outlined there at the beginning and and what you think makes it stand out right well so first of all i have never been to a place that is so down to earth honest good I mean, it's not that like there aren't characters and, you know, some self-interested people. There always are, right, in any large system, especially an academic system. People here are actually genuinely nice. It is much less like San Francisco than it is Iowa in many respects. You know, we're the only academic medical center for a very large swath of the country, meaning between the Pacific Ocean and Salt Lake City. We're the only one east to west and north to south between San Francisco and Portland, there is no other. We're wow. smack dab with a catchment area of six to eight million people. Our level one trauma service serves 33 of the 58 counties in California. And we train an amazing number of excellent physicians while turning out of our medical school, the truly the most diverse class in the United States of America. 
We are and committed to doing that, to have our people, our employees, our students, and our trainees reflect our communities. And it's not lip service here. It is heartfelt, and our principles of community are practiced every day. Our cultural and linguistic sensitivity is on our sleeves. Our care for everybody from a two-day-old to a hundred-year-old, right, is focused and specialized. And we don't skimp on caring, right? I mean, we're lucky. We've had some resources to deploy recently, but it's really the caring. As a CEO, I've had a lot of different jobs as an executive in many health systems. And I used to get, you know, 10 letters of complaint for every one that would be effusive in praise. At UC Davis, it's the exact opposite. I've never seen a place where I get 10 letters of effusive praise for the team or the caring of the nurses and the respiratory tech and the transporter and of course the physicians and the nurses and so few complaints because that is written into the fabric of this organization. So that is something you can't do as a leader. You can't change the culture of caring, or at least not it takes 10 or 20 years. That is built in. But what wasn't built in was an appreciation of how great we are. And so I would say the one thing that I've been able to help this organization in terms of changing its trajectory is for it to believe in itself about how good it is and was. And as a result, by just giving great people the opportunity to do great things by believing in them, we've managed to become one of the top 10 brands for local consumer loyalty when we were near the bottom seven years ago. We have the largest growth trajectory of academic medical centers, maybe any medical center in the United States of America. We have been growing 1% per month for the last 66 months, which is almost unheard of, even through COVID, through all of it. We've taken all of that growth and we have channeled it into the largest capital building campaign in the United States of America. We have more than $7 billion under construction. Yeah, it's really big. It's a generational change. And we have not had a new research building on this campus until now for 40 years. We have not had a new major clinical building for 30 years. And we are literally quintupling our ICU capacity and doubling our OR capacity, building the largest hospital outpatient ambulatory surgery center in the United States. We are just hitting on all cylinders not because we're trying to take over, because our motto is to complete and not compete with other healthcare systems, but to meet the needs for that giant area that I talked about and the specialized services that you can only find at UC Davis. And frankly, to stop thinking of our larger city companions in LA and San Francisco as being better than or different than what we can and are currently. They're amazing institutions, but so are we. Yeah. This also resonates because I was born in the Albany, New York area, another state capital in the shadow of a huge, famous city with everybody expecting the best out of New York and maybe not so much the best out of Albany, New York, but our health system was fantastic there. And there is kind of that, you have to sort of overcome that men that mentality, that inferiority complex, if you will. Yeah. And, and I think the growth trajectory and the and again our burgeoning subspecialized programs are just 
finished our 11th liver transplant, starting up our liver transplant program. And you may say, well, why is that important? There's, there's a liver transplant program, you know, 90 miles down the road in San Francisco. But all of Northern California actually has a higher mortality rate from chronic liver disease than any of the other urban areas in California. Why is that? Because there are no advanced programs easily convenient. And when people are sick, they don't want to travel all the way to the big city. So by we're not trying to take any business away. Actually, what we're trying to do is increase the work on behalf of patients who would other not otherwise not receive those services. So we really believe that we're we're hitting our stride in a way that takes away nothing from anyone else, but delivers in spades for all the local and regional hospitals with whom we have affiliations and partnerships. Yeah, no, that's a really important that you, you're occupying there. Let's shift to education for a minute because it's been a unbelievably tumultuous time and it doesn't seem to stop. AI has worked its way into everybody's consciousness and is starting to have an impact on clinical care, but also on education. So talk a little bit about you know, what's happening there from a curricular standpoint and how you're trying to roll with all these punches. Right. Well, first of all, holding back the hands of time or the tides of water has never succeeded. <laughs> so, you know, if you just start from that supposition, it's like saying, you know, I don't like those dang iPhones. It's going to be too easy to look up answers one day. Well, yeah, but the iPhone has not replaced the need for human cognitive cognizant, has not replaced the need for human sentience. It is augmented our ability to have information at our fingertips. This is just the next phase where the stuff that appears on chat GPT, etc., is actually a little more robust, a little more, more complete, and takes a heck of a lot less time to search through to get the answers you need. It doesn't replace the need for holding someone's hand being their partner in their healthcare choices, caring about them as a human being, and helping them navigate either their limitations or their recovery from limitations. No computer and no AI is going to fix that. And so number one is understanding what is the place, not of artificial intelligence, but of augmenting the intelligence of our caregivers. So that's number one. At the same time, we have an obligation as the gatekeepers of such information and such searches to make sure that we can direct both our patients and our caregivers and others to the right information, to guarantee that so-called AI hallucinations that give you false information, or AI has no actual thought, right? It just combs the available information from the past, synthesizes or looks for patterns you might not otherwise recognize, but can draw false conclusions if the data is, can draw false conclusions, even if the data is sort of right, but inflected with bias. And so there's a lot of work to do to make sure that augmented intelligence doesn't augment our bias at the same time by accident. Hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done, but to avoid it or, or not to work with it and not pretend it's going to be great, that's silly. It's about how do you harness it on behalf of our patients. You mentioned community a couple times earlier on and having a very diverse student body. So I want to kind of explore that area because it is one of the hallmarks I mentioned at the beginning. 
Talk about the partnerships you've developed, how you're trying to serve the community, and help people understand what the community is that you're trying to serve. I know you have a huge catchment area, but in this regard, what are the needs you're trying to meet? Right. Well, I, I think that's a great question. And I'm going to start with some examples of our local communities, relatively local communities. We've realized that health equity can really only be achieved if there's a combination of the healthcare being provided but the education that's necessary to take advantage of the information and the prescriptions, if you will, for how to take care of yourself. And if you actually have the time, the energy, the focus, and the resources, right, to get what's needed to make yourself well or keep yourself well. So economics, education, and healthcare equity occur in that order. And so we're trying to do our part in our anchor institution mission, we call AIM for Community Health. And we said, okay, we have all these empty jobs, like everybody did a couple of years ago, tons of empty jobs. And yet all around us, there were these 10 very underserved zip codes, the 10 most underserved zip codes in Sacramento by virtue of education, unemployment, median income. And we said, they have a lot of unemployment, but we have a lot of jobs. What's going on? Because only 6% of our workforce came from those zip codes. And what we found out was that it takes like a four-year college degree to actually navigate our website. And <laughs> <laughs> maybe more, because I have trouble sometimes, and I got a lot of degrees. And so we actually did all these community job fairs where we walked people through the application process, and where we became really friends with our community benefit associations and got them to be our allies in recruiting people who needed jobs to the jobs that we had. And we've managed in two years' time to go from 6% to 20% of our unlicensed workforce from those 10 most underserved zip codes. Wow. So when people talk about health equity, you have to actually make that make sure that there's enough resources in the community to support healthy options. And then in terms of education, reading, reaching out, especially to people in the high school level or early college level, we have several programs that specifically reach out either to the inner city or to the Latino population that are around to inspire them to enter into healthcare fields. Our medical school has a holistic admissions process that tries to create or develop physicians who better reflect the makeup of our community. Mm. We've been incredibly successful in doing that. I said, US News and World ranks us as number three as the most diverse medical school in the US, but that's wrong because the historically black colleges and university have more underrepresented minorities, but they're mostly African-American. This number two is Florida International University, which is almost all Hispanic. But we are actually have Asian Islanders and we have Hmong and we have the largest number of Native Americans in the United States. And we graduate the most Hispanic medical students in the United States. Wow. And we have two thirds of our medical students who come from the lowest half of the economic strata, as opposed to every other medical school, which is 80% from like the top quintile or something crazy like that. We really have a process of our admissions that says, how do we find people with talent and drive, and commitment and compassion, and give them the support and the help that they need to become physicians and they don't have to have the best MCAT scores to start with, but we provide, because they haven't got the, you know, if there's a bunch of new publications that show that standardized tests, 
you know, the rich do much better. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter. They're not necessarily the more intelligent or more clever or more hardworking. It's just, they're just trained. Like, and so I think that, and, and I speak about this because one of my daughters had a perfect score in the ACT, right? She's one of 1500 kids. How did she do that? I, tutored, I got her tutored every week, right? When I was a professor, I'm like, I thought that's really important. It didn't make her a smarter person, just made her a better test taker, right? Right, right. We need to reach down into our communities and find those incredible talents that maybe haven't been tutored and taken multiple choice tests. So we're being very successful at that. And it's now finally, because it requires a pipeline. So we have this great diverse class. We're graduating some great doctors, and now we're beginning to bring them into our own graduate training program. And so they're becoming more diverse, and that will then help us get to the level of diversity in our faculty. That's the ultimate goal. So the entire organization reflects the community that we serve. And I will just say that our brand loyalty, our growth trajectory, and people go, well, you guys just, you're taking substandard people. You're probably hurting medicine. I hear this all the time. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> because we a very diverse organization and you know we're lately number two number three number four for mortality in the united states of america so i don't think that what you're saying is right or we have the best mortality rates in trauma in the united states and i'm like so i'm pretty sure that the people we're hiring are great and they're diverse and they are not at odds yeah there's also a fallacy that you know People learn at different rates, and I saw some research that it's really not about that. Just people start at a different place. Yes. As you were saying, if they have had exposure to tutors and have taken lots of standardized tests, they're sort of starting at a different place than other folks who haven't had that in their life. So Right. And the, again, <laughs> native intelligence and, and street smarts. I will just say, as someone who ran the largest anesthesia training program uh, in the United States for many years, that some of the very best, highest scoring test takers were by far not the best physicians in the organization mm. because those are two different skill sets. Yeah. Regurgitation of information is one thing, and that's what you get on standardized tests. Synthesis and application and compassion, different skill sets. Yeah, completely. And, and the more important ones is getting back to AI, if AI is able to take a lot of the memorization and, and that sort of rote learning off the plate, all the decision support stuff that it can do, that leaves it even more important that people have the soft skills, the human skills, that ability to synthesize and connect that you're talking about. Right. And and I'll just say that, the again, plenty of studies out there which show that if you have people that look like you, either as your caregiver or around in that clinic, the people who are from that ethnic or cultural background trust what you're telling them. So therefore, they follow the directions and their health outcomes improve. So you again, you can be the smartest person in the world and give the best prescription that's exactly correct. But if you don't have the faith and the trust of the community that you're serving, they won't follow your directions. And so therefore you're not doing the job of healing and curing. So it's something just to think about. It's not just being right, it's being effective. Yeah, very, very well said. Sorry to say we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. So I, I wanna shift to one of our favorite questions, which is to get 
some advice from our guests. You are around students, obviously, all the time. So what's your go-to advice for learners and early career health professionals? Find your dharma. So Jay Sheedy, Think Like a Monk, that's from his book. And someone insisted I read it uh, a few years ago. I'm like, wow, that's such a great book. I, I, I like, you know, has a lot of great information about leadership. And But the part I really liked was find what you love, find what you're really passionate about, find what has meaning to you, find what you're really good at. And if you can join those all together, that's what you should be doing every day. Because then it's not like a job. It's it's your avocation, not your vocation. It's 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 your your purpose. If you if every day you go to work and you're fulfilling your purpose in life, your life is great. My life is great. I I I love coming to work. People go like you work so hard, the hours. I'm like, I love what I do. That's why I work this hard. Not because I think I'm making a difference. I, I could be deluding myself, <laughs> but I'm happy working that hard. And that's how everybody should be, which is that they shouldn't, you should, shouldn't live to work, but you should actually love your work. It's wonderful advice and a, and a great note to end on. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Dr. Lubarski, and also for all the work you're doing there at UC Davis to provide the community with the healthcare it needs and to train future healthcare professionals. It's really been fascinating. Well, thank you very much. It's a privilege to work with the team here at UC Davis Health and just want to close by saying I have been inspired all along the way by one of the most foremost African-American educators, my boss, Chancellor Gary May, who his lifelong commitment to diversity and equal, not only opportunity, but equal outcomes for learners and students is, is inspirational. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I'm Michael Carice, and I want to thank our audience for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.